We're going to read this verse together. We're going to get started with our sin. And when the centurion... All right, you can be seated. Hi, my name is Justin Gottlieb. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Mile Road. Uh, I don't get to see you guys as much as I would like uh, because my family and I live in Malden. We go to the Malden site. Uh, but I want you guys to know you're on my heart all the time. The work that I get to do here on the, for the church um, is largely about supporting both Malden and Melrose. Um, and that's whether it's business stuff or, um, or, or teaching theology or specifically uh, music stuff. I get to spend a lot of time with, with your band leaders um, and, and with musicians, and it's a great joy for me to get to do that. So even though I don't get to see you all the time, uh, please know that I love you guys and I'm for you guys, and I'm really eager uh, to see the hand of God move in Melrose and in your life in particular. Uh, Today we're going to be preaching from Mark, I'm going to be preaching from Mark 15, verse 33, verses 33 through 39. Uh, we're, we're getting towards the end of a year and a half series that we've had in the Gospel of Mark. All right, we started at chapter 1, verse 1. You guys remember that? Pretty sure some folks have been born since then. Like, they're like I've celebrated multiple birthdays in this time span. Yeah, so, um, so it's been a, a long ride to get here. Today is a big moment in the Gospel of Mark. All right, there's a couple of reasons that I'll get to on that, but, but it's, big, uh, it's big there. And we've also been, over the summer, preaching through uh, what we've called the series, The Brutal Price of the Ransom Jesus Paid. So we spent the last two months really just talking about the last few days of Jesus' life. That's how Mark recorded it. Um, it's how God inspired it, and it's been our joy to preach along those lines. So we're now three sermons from finishing up both of those things, the Gospel of Mark and this brief brief, smaller series within a series. Um, and, and that allows us to see some of the things that Mark has been doing uh, from the beginning of this book. Um, it, it allows us to get to this point and bring themes and concepts together that, that we would see in, in snapshots, but if we, don't, if we don't stand back, we may not see the whole thing. And one of those things is, is from, from the whole time, um, we've been seeing the rejection and suffering of Jesus in his earthly ministry almost every week. All right? We've seen Jesus get dogged out because of his humble family. Like, could this teacher really come from those people? That kind of thing. Um, we've seen him be called a demon by scribes, all right, by the people that were supposed to get Jesus. He's been called a lawbreaker which is really ironic because he wrote the law and came to fulfill the law. Yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy. Um, he's been plotted against by religious leaders who sought not just his imprisonment, but his death. Uh, he's been betrayed by a close friend. He's been abandoned by the rest of his friends when it really counted, when it mattered the most in his life, his friends were gone. Um, he's been falsely convicted at a joke of a trial. Um, he was unjustly condemned to die there. Uh, the only thing not a joke at that trial was the, very, was the fact that the Son of God was condemned to death at the end of it. All right, he was beat up, he was mocked, he was stripped naked, he's been nailed to a cross. And as we pick up the text today, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross. And as he hangs there, even now he's being taunted 
by the chief priests and the scribes. They're saying, he saved others? He, saved, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. He's being taunted like that by the religious leaders. Okay, And, and if that's not enough, the folks hanging on either side of him on the cross are also cursing him. So I think it's fair to say that Mark has shown us that Jesus had a steady diet of rejection and suffering and pain in his life. And at the same time Mark's been showing us that, he's also been re- revealing Jesus' divinity to us. See, Mark actually started the book, chapter 1, verse 1, by declaring Jesus the Son of God. And, and Mark records the baptism of Jesus. And when that happens, the heavens split, and Mark tells us there was a voice from heaven, the voice voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son all right as jesus went about the countryside healing people um, demons knew multiple times demons knew and proclaimed him to be the son of god in mark 9 jesus is on the mount of transfiguration with peter james and john and jesus or god says god the father proclaims him his son there and despite all of this nobody gets it At least they don't get it as they should. Not even his disciples. So finally, a few weeks ago, we heard that at his trial, a high priest finally gets at it a little bit. But even when the high priest says it, he says it sarcastically and and with bad intentions when he says, are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed? Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants us to see that Jesus is truly divine. But he also wants us to see that Jesus is going to be rejected and is going to suffer. And whether or not we can wrap our minds around that truth, Mark insists that it is true and that it is so. All right, and we're going to see that even more today. We're going to read this text. Um, if you'll open up to Mark 15, verse 33, you can. If you've got the Bible with you, we'll read that and we're going to pray. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. God, I pray that you would be with us today. Pray that your word would come in power. Not because of anything that I say or not because of anything that we hear outside of you and your clear voice in the scriptures. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the death of Jesus Christ, your son, as we should, as we ought. And I pray that you would cause us to hope in him and in him alone. Be good to your people like that today. 
Amen. All right, to start, we need to get a little bit of the situation for, of, of Israel. So just rehash just momentarily um, a little bit about the law and the temple. So for, for years, for centuries, God's people had been working hard under the law. They, these like people, um, not just them, but all of us desperately need God. We were created in his image. We were created for relationship with him. We were created to mirror his glory um, and, and, and to, to delight in him. Right? The psalmist actually wrote in Psalm 84, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So if we could take away sin, if we could take away sin's effects in our lives, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in, in all of us, in our souls, that's what our hearts would say. All right, that's what we were created to know and to believe was that nothing surpassed delight in God. Nothing was better than being with Him and around Him. But because of sin and the hard hearts that we now have, as a result of sin, like we didn't get that. We couldn't do it. And so there was this law, but under the law we could never really cut it. Like we could never get there. Works were never able to fully and finally deal with our sin so that we could be holy enough to come face to face with God. All right, God's people had never been perfectly clean or perfectly holy and able to live in the presence of God the way Adam and Eve did in the beginning in the garden. And so even though God dwelt among His people in Israel, all right, even though He did that, even though He dwelt in the tabernacle and then in the temple, people weren't allowed to enter in. Okay, His... There, like, his holiness and human sinfulness necessitated this veil because humans could not step into God's presence, just couldn't do it. Um, so one day a year, or one time a year, one priest was able to go in to the Holy of Holies in the temple and be before God. Now day after day, sacrifices were made and the law was taught but it was that one priest, once a year, was allowed to go in there. And for the rest of the priest and the rest of the people, the, there was a veil in the temple. And that was what they got. That was as close as they got. See, God was in the building, but because of His holiness, because of our sin, we couldn't get there. To approach Him would actually kill you. And so they were essentially left out on the sidewalk in some regards. They wanted to know and to delight in the greatest joy that existed, but had no access and, and little hope for attaining it. Obedience to the law was their hope to get in, but it was also their indictment because they couldn't hold it up. See, obedience was supposed to bring life to them. Obedience to the law was supposed to bring life, but their sinful hearts could never really be there, could never really be fully obedient. So something had to give. Today, Mark is going to show us how God intervened on behalf of His people. Mark's going to tell us that the wrath of God fell on the Son of God so that we could have access to God. So as we pick up this text right now, we're about to read verse 33, but as we pick it up, I need you to keep in mind, we're picking up where Pastor Dan finished last week. Jesus has been beaten, bruised, and is hanging from a cross, left there to die. All right, verse 33. 
When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We're going to stop there. Did you need to hear that? The sky went dark. It was the brightest part of the day. It was 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. There's few things you can bank on in life, and one is that the sun's supposed to be up right then. All right? It's there. But it wasn't. It was pitch dark. For three hours, no light. And if you're like me, you want to know what's going on, right? Because the sky just doesn't go dark. It doesn't happen. Light bulbs go out. The sun doesn't. All right? So we don't really know what's happening. Fortunately, if we start digging around our Bibles a little bit, we find that the sun has been out before. And, and one time in particular I want to take you to um, shows us that this isn't a matter of God forgetting to change the light bulb or to refill the sun with, with whatever gas it burns up. Uh, no, he has a message for us in this. In Exodus, God was cursing Egyptian people because of Pharaoh's, God heart, uh, Pharaoh's hard heart. God had ordered Pharaoh to release the Israelites, and Pharaoh refused. His heart was hardening, and one of the things that happened was that darkness fell as a result. You'll probably remember there were a bunch of plagues. There were, there were a, a series of plagues, and one of them was a plague of darkness. God turned out the light on Egypt for three days. I'm going to read Moses' account of that. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is from Exodus 10, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. I want you to notice that thing at the end, that last sentence. The interesting thing about the story is that Israel had light. They didn't experience the darkness. God's people didn't. Moses tells us that everywhere Egypt was, Egyptians were, dark. They couldn't even stand up. They couldn't see one another. But where Israel was, light. And that's important because the darkness was for the cursed. Okay, it was for the Egyptians. It was judgment. Darkness in the land was marking those with whom God was displeased and on whom his curse was falling. So from this, we can learn when we, when we go to Mark 15, when we see Jesus on the cross and we're told that it's dark from 12 to 3, we learn that what that's telling us is that judgment is falling on Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Jesus is at that moment cursed. Paul wrote it like this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus has become cursed for us. On the cross, in this suffering, Jesus was bearing our curse. That's what the darkness was about. And Mark told us that the whole land was dark. All of it. He said it explicitly. All right. In Egypt, before the Passover, only the Egyptians were in the dark. But here, the whole land was dark. Jesus was taking on everyone's curse there. It was everyone's sin causing the darkness, and it was Jesus bearing it. Jesus is bearing all of it. 
So there's one clear answer to why it went dark. I need you to hear this. The answer is it was our sin. And we need to be careful because our skeptical minds want, want to and, and easily look for other reasons for the darkness, but there's only that one. We need to look to ourselves, not nature, for the cause of the darkness. It wasn't about comets or eclipses, and it wasn't about a lack of green energy. Okay, It was about the wrath of God do me and you falling on Jesus. God was showing us that the wrath of God fell on his son. But he was doing a little bit more too. He was shaking us a little bit. Okay, have you guys ever been at the theater or you were in a classroom growing up, you know, and things were a little loud and out of hand and things needed to quiet down so we could get started with something? And somebody would go over and flip the light switch. That ever happened before? To get everyone's attention? So in a way, God is doing this. All right, he, he's saying, curse is falling on the sun, and I don't want you to miss it. Okay, this was an astonishing display so that we wouldn't miss that the Son of God was bearing the curse of sinners. And the trouble is that we're so messed up that we don't get the significance of it. We don't get the significance of the Son of God nailed to a cross to die so that we won't face eternal judgment. We don't get that. And we know we don't get it because we go on with our sin. We go on with our hard hearts. And we don't even consider how obscene this is. See, it's obscene that our sin caused Jesus to be nailed to a cross. And yet we laugh it off and don't even care sometimes. See, God knows how ridiculous this is. And he knows it because his son was up there. He didn't spare his son. He gave his son for us. And then he flashed the lights off and on on the, on the land so that we would see it. His son is dying because of my sin and because of your sin. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, He's calling Elijah. So after this three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out with a huge voice. And, and it's important that we don't think of this as the cry of a little child. Think of it, if we can, as the cry of a grown man on whom the curse for all the sins of the world has fallen. All of our sin has fallen on him, all Every one of the, sins, of the sins we've confessed, every one we haven't, ones that we've committed, ones that we have yet to commit, all falling on Jesus. And we can multiply that by millions. See, Jesus has never rebelled against the Father. He's never disobeyed. But He's bearing the wrath of every single God-hating act His people have ever committed. And, his, and He's crying out, not only because of the physical pain of being nailed to the cross to die, He's emotionally wrecked from being separated from the Father. Jesus is suffering as a ransom for many. He's paying the brutal price of ransom in his life is that payment. His cry was straight from Scripture. It was the words of David from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to stop there because part Okay, so, so there was the physical toil of the crucifixion, right? Which is literally enough to kill you, right? 
But then there's this. In the hardest, most intense moment of his life, Jesus couldn't lean into the Trinity for relief, for support, for comfort. The Father in whom Jesus had communed with and delighted in for all eternity was now turned away. And we can't fully get it, but we need to try for a moment. We need to envision the relationship. For all eternity, God the Father looked upon God the Son with great delight. Infinite delight. Unending joy. And the Son looked back at the Father with infinite delight. Infinite joy. There had never been any contempt, any lies, any deceit, any anger, any irritation, any jealousy, any distance, or any hurt between them. None. Nothing but perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect joy, and infinite delight. There had never before been a moment in which Jesus did not know that God the Father was 100% with him and for him. So in a real way, when Jesus is on the cross, he's feeling abandoned by his greatest companion and greatest joy. Now God has turned away from his son as the curse fell on him. Right? But but there's more to it than that. Okay, here's here's what we need to see. So that is a positive, like their relationship was huge and positive and joyous. Right? It was the best relationship you could ever have. Okay, there is that... And if you take that away, you get to zero. You get to no relationship, right? You guys see where I'm going with this? If you take that away, all of a sudden, the delight is gone. But Jesus' situation was worse than that. Because he, didn't, he didn't just lose his greatest companion in joy. Jesus is now coming to terms with the fact that he's bearing our sin. He has become the filthiest of all sinners and is having God as his judge. Great companion, to great judge. See what I mean? We're moving from a huge positive to an infinite joy and delight to infinite terror. Jesus is bearing judgment for all of our sins. The most minute and the most horrendous. And He's doing so in front of a perfectly just and powerful judge. He's standing before God the judge as a murderer, as an adulterer, as a liar, as a thief, as a cheater, as a covenant breaker. And we could go on and on and on. Calvin said it like this. Now, nothing is more dreadful than to feel that God, whose wrath is worse than all deaths, is the judge. Nothing could be more terrifying or horrendous than to be Jesus on the cross. Nothing. That's why he's crying out. On the cross, Jesus is drinking deep a cup of wrath, and it's real to him. And if you have believed the gospel, you don't and you won't feel the pain of your sin like you should have. But it's not because it's not real. It's because Jesus felt every bit of it. Jesus' cry is evidence of the pain He bore while bearing the penalty of your sin. There's pain and there's agony and there's overwhelming shame involved as Jesus bears our wrath on the cross. 
And he didn't die in a calm and serene garden with pain management doctors making sure he didn't feel anything. He was cursed and he knew it. He was dying and he knew it. He had nails in his hands and he felt them. They were in his feet and he felt them. And he was separated from the Father. And he knew it. Jesus died feeling everything he possibly could and didn't shy away from it for a second. Not a second. So that you could be saved. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cry doesn't show weakness. It verifies that he really bore our curse. It verifies that our sins have really been dealt with. And some of the bystanders, verse 35, hearing it, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So having heard Jesus' cry, some of the folks thought that he was calling on Elijah. This was Jewish folk religion, and what it believed was that Elijah would return, the prophet Elijah would return to help the righteous people, to help the righteous ones in crisis situations. All right, they were thinking that if Jesus was truly righteous, if he really was who he said he was, then he wouldn't be allowed to suffer. Elijah would come down and see him. Now, of course, we know that there's a problem with this um, because, because Jesus came to be a ransom for many. And he told us, he's been telling us that all along in this gospel. And they were missing that. All right, Jesus had said it, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus' suffering was the means through which access to God would come to sinners just like them. Didn't get it. And so they were saying, let's wait. They were prolonging his death, waiting to see what would happen. Yet as he tends to do, God uses their misinformed actions to show us once again, if the lights coming off didn't show us, that the sin he was bearing was ours. They bring him sour wine, they hoping to lengthen his life so that they could see Elijah. But for God... It was another chance to show us that Jesus was drinking the cup of the people. All right, they brought him sour wine. This was a cheap drink that laborers, uh, day laborers would, would use, that soldiers would use to relieve their thirst. They liked it better than water. Essentially, it was Gatorade with a little alcohol and zero marketing. But they drank it and, and went, er, but they drank it and they brought it to him. And as that happens, we're able to see once again that Mark, Mark is showing us that Jesus is taking on himself the people's lot on the cross. That's what the sour wine is about. The wrath of God fell on the Son of God for the many. Elijah was not coming to save Jesus because Jesus came to save us. In Mark 15:37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. 
See, we're supposed to see here that Jesus died with power. Right? He didn't die with a whimper. He died with a shout. Most who were crucified died slowly as their strength was sapped. Their very life just moved from their body. It was a long thing. Not Jesus. He went with another loud cry. He wasn't weak or powerless, but offered himself up as he breathed his last with a shout. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. His words in John 10 tell us this. So enlightening to look back on it. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. All right, so Jesus' death was different because he gave his life up. It wasn't taken from him. But even more, his death was different from all others because it wasn't his death. It was your death. It was my death. It was the people's death who was watching, who were watching. Jesus didn't owe his death to sin. He owed nothing. We owe everything. But God caused him to die it for us. And Jesus submitted to the reality of death. Not because it was his debt, but so that you would be his forever. Jesus' death was the brutal price of our ransom paid. And the consequences of it were huge. At his death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Right? This, this, was the, this was the veil that separated man from God. All right? No human could have torn it. It was big enough, thick enough, heavy enough. Humans weren't doing this. An act of God. He tore it down. All right? and, and as this happened, it was a sign of destruction coming to the temple. Jesus had, had been hinting at this. like In rejecting Jesus, the temple and its leaders showed that they had missed the point. And so Jesus, we've heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So as Jesus breathed his last, as the veil was torn, the old temple was done. It was finished. It was through. There's no more need for it. Jesus was the new and greater temple. He's the atonement that would never need repeating. So enough with the goats, enough with the bulls, enough with the doves, and enough with whatever sacrifices we think we earn God's favor with. Enough with it. Enough with being a good person. The Son of God has died. By Jesus' death, the curtain between you and God is torn down. Because He was crucified, because He came, became a curse for you, you can draw near with full assurance of faith. Your evil conscience is a thing of the past because Jesus bore your wrath. You don't have to stay on the outside of the Holy of Holies because of your sin. You're washed clean. You're holy and pure because of God's death. Jesus' death. Take hold of that. Hope in His death, not in bankrupt works righteousness. The most holy place is now open and available to those who find themselves in Him. 
the wrath of God fell on the Son of God so that you would have access to God. And even more, the tearing of the curtain signifies that, that God will no longer reside solely in the temple. God's presence would now extend far beyond ethnic Israel. Like it was no longer about Israel knowing God and other people coming there. It was now about the world coming to know God. And let me tell you why this is so exciting. It's exciting because, because now that Jesus died, because the veil was torn, people in Africa and people in the Indian Ocean and people in Philadelphia and people in Wisconsin and people in Wakefield and in Malden and in Melrose can all have access to God. The wrath of God fell on the Son of God so that the world could have access to Him. And just to make sure that we don't miss any of this, God reveals who Jesus is to a Gentile centurion who saw it all. He's ironically the first person to really get at Jesus' true nature. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in his way he breathed his last, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. All right, this centurion worked for the Roman emperor. He, to get to be who he was, he had to give himself fully to the most powerful man in the world, Caesar. Caesar was known in some instances, as the Son of God. And here's the centurion saying, truly, this man was the Son of God. I need you to know that there's no way he should be saying that. All right, he had seen hundreds of crucifixions. He knew what it looked like, sounded like, and smelled like for a man to be nailed to a cross and left there to die for all to see. He wasn't to be shaken by it. His livelihood rested on Caesar and his allegiance to Caesar. Everything he had then and everything he would have the rest of his life would be based on his allegiance and service to Caesar. All right? If his allegiance went away, everything went away. So then we got to wonder, what brought about this response? If you read much about this confession, you would actually hear even more reason that he couldn't have meant what we mean when we say son of God. All right, you would read, if you went looking, you would read that he didn't have the theological framework to put together the Jewish scriptures all right, and get to a place where he could, he could believe that this was God's sole, only begotten son in a Christian sense. All right, he wasn't a Jew that had that background that lent himself to putting together all the pieces. And so what people would tell you is that he meant that he was a divine man. All right, people would argue that the centurion knew there was something special about Jesus, but he didn't really know that he was the one true Son of God. They would tell you that he was merely impressed with how Jesus died. His death was a little unusual for a crucifixion. He kept all his faculties. He cried out like a warrior rather than with weakness. And people would use this to convince you to explain away the fact, that this, to, to explain away so that we wouldn't think the centurion meant to confess Christ that day. I don't find that satisfactory. So I got to ask, what if the godless centurion just witnessed Jesus die and 
was changed forever by it. What if he was as ignorant of his sin and of theology and of the Scriptures when he woke up that morning as I was the day that I got saved? What if he just plain got knocked over by Jesus' death? I mean, after all, the cross is where God most revealed himself to humanity. His justice, his grace, his love, all that on full display at the cross. We know that. And if that's true, would it be that surprising if a centurion saw it and actually confessed this is the Son of God? Could he not do that? Absolutely. And I've been praying that that would happen here. And now, for a couple weeks now, I've been praying that somebody would get knocked over like the centurion this morning. Or somebody would come in here all godless and under judgment and not even knowing it, but leave here saying, truly, this man was the Son of God. It would be so cool. You don't know it yet, but it would be so cool if all your hopes and dreams got busted wide open today because you saw the bloody and agonizing death of Jesus is what it was. What if you went from facing God the judge to facing God, the one who rescued a sinner. Don't miss it. The wrath of God fell on the Son of God so that we could have access to God. The truth is that Jesus' suffering and death broke all human categories for divinity. Let's embrace that. He's that kind of God and He's that kind of King. So of course the centurion should have been stunned by all of this. So should we. At the end of the day, the centurion was there confessing Jesus as the Son of God. It wasn't the brightest of Israel or Rome. It wasn't the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the religious leaders. It wasn't the ones who were supposed to get it. It was the least likely. It was the one who knew nothing of the Jewish Scriptures. It was the one who oversaw Jesus' death. And it's not likely that any of us would get this either and fit it together. But by His grace, God opens eyes. So we aren't too ignorant or too far gone or have sinned too much for Jesus to save us. The wrath of God fell on the Son of God so that you could have access to God. Let's be a people that revel in that. With Jesus' death and the tearing of the temple curtain, The temple and your works are done. All that's left is to hope in the new and greater temple, Jesus. There's only hoping in that one true atoning sacrifice, the bloody death of Christ. Hope there. His death is your glory. Take hold of it. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the cross as beautiful. I pray that you would cause us to know that Christ died for our sins. He bore the wrath we were due. And that we now stand before you clean and holy and pure. 
I pray that you would encourage the broken, those that want to take hold of you but just don't believe that they're good enough. Would you show them today that they're not good enough? But that Jesus was. Would you encourage today like that? And God, would you move some from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God, to eternal joy in you? I pray that you would do it and that you would build a people here who hope in and trust in the death of Christ. Let that be our joy in all that we stand in. In my prayer. Amen.